As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet, and that prophet was Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, and this is written in Isaiah and Jeremiah, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And that was King David in Psalm 8. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your precious son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for uh, this record, this account uh, of uh, what happened uh, the day that he entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, read these things and think about these things, uh, and as I speak, that you would draw us to your majestic son. We ask it for his sake. Amen. I don't know, have you ever heard that expression, dead man walking? Uh, It came to prominence, I think, in the middle of the 90s with a book by the same title, Dead Man Walking, uh, and then also the Sean Penn film. You might have seen the Sean Penn film, uh, Dead Man Walking. Uh, But the expression refers apparently to uh, what would happen often in American jails uh, around the middle of last century when uh, prisoners were being led to be executed and the the prison guards would call out uh, as this prisoner was led to the uh, execution chamber, Dead Man Walking, exactly why they said that is subject to some debate. But that's what they would say. And in these last chapters of Matthew, from Matthew 21 to the end of his biography of Jesus' life, Jesus, if you like, is the dead man walking. 
This chapter begins the last week of Jesus' life before uh, his crucifixion. Uh, And this chapter begins that long, slow march of Jesus to his death. But this chapter is seems kind of at one level to be oblivious of that. Uh, Jesus had only just a few verses earlier predicted his death once again to his disciples. He says, I'm going to die. And they still, you know, not quite sure what's going on. But Jesus' death uh, and crucifixion and the agony of that uh, and the shame of that seems a long way from the excitement of Jesus entering Jerusalem here six days beforehand. Jesus tells his disciples to go and uh, find uh, a donkey for him and her colt from a neighbouring village. He wants to ride it into Jerusalem. It helps to know, I think, for us that uh, in, days, in the days before, long before Jesus, Jerusalem had been the seat of power. It had been the place where the king lived, uh, the Israelite king had lived. David had lived there. Uh, and it was the place from which the kings ruled. And so what Jesus is doing, if you like, here is making an entry into the seat of power. He's making the entry of a king into the king's city. He specifically asks for a donkey in order to fulfil that prophecy from Zechariah. Verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. By riding in on a donkey, you see, Jesus was making an explicit claim. He's saying, I am the king that God promised hundreds of years beforehand. And what's interesting, actually, if you go back to Zechariah and you read that verse originally from Zechariah, and if you read around it to see uh, sort of the other things that are being said around there, you begin to find out what kind of king Jesus is claiming to be. So, So listen to these words as they come from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So far, so good. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, that is, one of the the tribes of Israel. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace, the king will. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus comes on a donkey, not in a chariot. That's the point. Jesus comes on a donkey, not on a war horse. Jesus comes on a donkey, not with a bow and arrows. Jesus comes on a donkey. He comes in peace. And to bring peace, he comes as a gentle king, gentle, and riding on a donkey. It's interesting, uh, I think, that we find it so difficult to put those two ideas together, gentle and king. When we think of king, you know, we probably think of Henry VIII, uh, beheading his wives, uh, you know, or some of, I don't know, take your pick of kings uh, through the centuries, or we might think of modern-day dictators. So we might think of Saddam Hussein, uh, or we might think of King Jong-un. Get that right. But we think of, when we think king, when we think ruler, we think distant, 
selfish, authoritarian, dictatorial, abusive. That's what we think of when we think of a king. And when we think of gentle, we think of Jesus, my best friend, who says yes to everything that I want to do and always think that my ideas are the best ideas. Jesus, who never causes a stir. But Jesus is neither of those caricatures. He is a gentle king. He is God the king who rules over God's world. He's God the king who's to be obeyed and revered and honoured and respected and loved. But he's also gentle and close. Close, not distant. Gentle, not heavy-handed. Kind, not harsh. Loving, not hateful. Approachable, not terrifying. We find it so hard to put those two things together because we've never seen that reality before. No wonder these people were excited about the possibility of Jesus being God's promised king. I watch the news every week, you know, and you, and you watch our politicians, you know, manoeuvre each other around. Manipulate events. And you long for a good king. And the people gathered that day when Jesus came into Jerusalem suddenly said to themselves, Hosanna, God save us with the gentle king. So Jesus enters uh, Jerusalem in this incredible procession. They recognise him as God's long-awaited king. And they call out for God to save them. Hosanna, as, uh, as Chris said, literally means save or rescue. But the question, I think, is, at the end of that kind of those events, what kind of king, what kind of salvation is Jesus going to bring? And what Matthew goes on to tell us, I think, explains to a large degree what kind of king Jesus is supposed to be. At first glance, you probably don't notice that Jesus entering the temple kind of flows straight on from entering Jerusalem. We have that heading in our Bible, and although it's just a, a couple of words, uh, it kind of mucks, mucks our heads around, and we don't see that actually Matthew wants us to realise that this whole thing is connected. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's, he's uh, revered by the people, celebrated by the people, and the first thing that he does is to go into the temple and to drive these uh, people out. It's the answer to the question, who is this Jesus? What's he about? What's his mission? What's his purpose? What kind of saviour is he? Jesus' uh, work in the temple leaves us in no doubt about what kind of mission he has. He gets in there and he drives out the people buying and selling in the temple courts. He overturns the tables of the money changers uh, and also the people selling doves. What had happened, you see, was that the outer courts, there are a few kind of regions in the, in the temple, and in the outer courts, uh, there were money changers, uh, religious merchants uh, selling all kinds of religious paraphernalia. The money, money changers were there so that people coming 
with foreign currencies could pay the temple tax. So there was a, a tax kind of to support the upkeep of the temple and so on. And the money changers were there providing a, a useful service, really, so that people could uh, pay that tax. There were people selling doves and, and other animals as well. And that was so that people coming from a long way away could uh, buy sacrifices that, uh, to offer to God uh, in anticipation, as God required them to do, in anticipation of Jesus' final sacrifice. So there are these merchants cluttering up that court, that outer court of the temple, and Jesus drives them out. It's not so much, I don't think, that what they were doing was wrong. They were providing a genuine and a legitimate service to people. It was helpful. It's not so much what they were doing, but where they were doing it. Jesus said the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer, but it had become so cluttered by all these kind of merchants that there was no space to find, to speak with God. What people found when they came was a marketplace. In other words, the commerce and even the bare necessities of life had driven away fellowship with God. Let me say that again. The the commerce and even the busyness of life had driven away fellowship with God. I think that same problem exists for us as well. The danger for us is not that this building might become cluttered. The church building isn't a temple. The real problem is that our lives and our minds and our hearts become so crowded that there's no longer space for communicating with God, for speaking with God and hearing God speak through his word. It's not just that our own individual lives become cluttered, but even our lives together become cluttered. So we spend time with other Christians, but, but there's never time to talk with God. Prayer, I think, is a great barometer of spiritual health. When cr- prayer is crowded out, <laughs> you're not in a good place. Those dangers come not just from the busyness of ordinary life, but also from the busyness of religious life. So we might pursue good things as Christians, right things, profitable things, things that God wants us to pursue, but to pursue them so fervently, so diligently, if you like, that actually there's no space left for God anymore. I suspect that was a very great problem for the Pharisees, that they were actually trying to pursue what God wanted, but somewhere along the way God had got left behind. It's so often like that, actually, isn't it, in relationships? You know, that you have this relationship and you you might be so busy trying to please this person that actually you forget about the person themselves. God becomes drowned out. It's a bit like going to the movies. I always think it's funny when people go, let's do something social. Let's go to the movies. 
They go, yeah, let's sit next to each other, not talking, looking somewhere else for two hours. I said, what a great way to kind of, you know, build, you know, the, uh, to be sociable. But it's, you know, our lives often are a bit like going to the movies, I think. You know, you sit in the same room as your girlfriend, but you never talk. You never speak. And maybe that's okay for an hour or two, but you can't live life in a movie theatre. If you try and live life in a movie theatre with all the commotion and all the noise, your relationship will be utterly destroyed. Because relationships are founded on communication, aren't they? If you don't communicate, I mean, what is a, what is a relationship? A relationship is, is actually knowing people more and more deeply every day. That's what a relationship is, isn't it? That's what it means to know God, to know God, more, to know more about God every day, to understand him more, and for God to, God already understands us, but to share ourselves with God. And if there's no communication, it's not even a relationship anymore. We can't live our lives with God in the movie theatre of life, where God's drowned out by just everything else all the noise and all the commotion. So what's Jesus' plan to clean it up? To clean up the temple? Turning over a few tables doesn't seem like it's going to do much good. I suspect that they probably just would have brought the tables out again the next day uh, and that they would have been there doing exactly the same things all over again, maybe even the same day. Maybe once he'd gone away, they kind of just tidied everything up again and started doing their trade. I suspect that's probably what happened. Now Jesus had a bigger idea in mind and what he does in turning over those tables is just a symbol, just a, a glimpse of what's to come. If you've got your Bible uh, still there, turn over a few pages to Matthew 24. Uh, to Matthew 24, verse 1 and 2. So this is a little bit later on uh, in the week... It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attentions to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. It's not just a matter of turning over tables and picking up our game. In order to meet God, we need a new meeting place. Turning over the tables is just a... Jesus' portent of what to come. It's just a sight, it's a glimpse. Of the end of the temple. There's a kind of symbolic meeting place with God. If you go to John's Gospel, John records another similar event in the early part of Jesus' ministry where he uh, raided the temple again. And Jesus says there, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days. And John writes, But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. You see, you won't find God uh, in a building. You won't find God in a temple or a church. You won't find God by kind of hiding away, running away to a cave and meditating for six months. Uh, 
If you want to meet God, you need to meet Jesus. Jesus is the new temple, the meeting place between God and humanity. God come in the flesh to live among us. Jesus is the answer to the commotion of the temple. So the temple was not only supposed to be a house of prayer, it was also supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Uh, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 56, and uh, he doesn't actually give us the full quote. So in verse 13, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but that's not the full, the full thing. If you look up Isaiah 56 verse 7, it reads, these, thing I'll bring, these I will bring to my holy mountain, these being the, the, uh, the nations, the people around, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. They're not just a house of prayer, but a house of prayer for everybody. Isaiah 56 is talking about God welcoming people who were normally excluded. God's house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but the commerce and the busyness in those outer courts kept people away. All this buying and selling was happening in the outer court, and that's where everybody was welcome. All the nations were welcome there, all the people who were... uh, uh, who normally wouldn't be uh, included, were welcome into that court. But because there was all these tables and everything going on around the place, they couldn't get in. And if they did get in, all they had was all the noise and commotion to distract them. And again, that same danger, I think, is never far away from us. We arrange our lives, our communities, our churches, our families... And the commotion of our lives excludes people, maybe not intentionally. Maybe we do do it intentionally. But the structure of our lives excludes people. We never say, you're not welcome. But that's a consequence of our actions. The kinds of people we might exclude are the same kinds of people that Jesus welcomed. The foreigners, the sick the widowed, the old, the grubby, the outcasts of society, the kind of people that our society in general doesn't embrace. Think of the, uh, of the millions of refugees uh, around the world fleeing the war in their own country. Jesus welcomes the people that we don't welcome. When the sick and the lame came to Jesus, he welcomed them, He received them, but he didn't just receive them, he also healed them. Jesus' mission isn't just to welcome people, to welcome the outcast, but it's also to make broken people whole again. So you and I can welcome uh, as many strangers as we want. We could could, uh, welcome all the strangers uh, in the world, but all we'd be doing is patching up people's Lives. I mean, we should welcome all the people in the world. But if we welcome them, there's nothing that we can do to make them whole again. Only Jesus can heal people. We can't do that. We're not the Messiah. We're not the Saviour. 
We patch people up, but only Jesus can make them new. What people need is to meet Jesus, not to meet us. So what's the point of welcoming people then? It's not just so that we can patch their lives up, but so that we can say, I've got this great friend you've really got to meet. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer and fellowship with God, but it had become a marketplace. The temple was supposed to be for all the nations, but it had become reorganised to make it mostly for the in people. Jesus' final accusation against the temple leaders was that it had become a den of robbers. So again in verse 13, and that's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 7. Uh, Verse 11, and God says to the people there, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We're safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So you see, what the people were doing is the people were doing whatever they wanted and then they'd come into the temple and they'd go, yep, we are in. doesn't matter what I've been doing the rest, of the rest of the time, but, you know, as long as I come and I stand in this temple, you know, once a week or, you know, every, whatever it is, whatever the requirements are that I need to tick off, as long as I'm doing that, it's okay. But God says, no, it's not okay. And Jesus says, it wasn't okay in Jeremiah's day and it's not okay in my day. The people that Jesus is talking to are living lives which have no reference to God. But they scamper into the temple at the religious festivals and they think, we're all safe. I saw this uh, great comic strip during the, uh, the week which I think nails... Uh, the hypocrisy pretty well. Can I put that up, Simon? So hopefully you can read this. So he says, just stay on that last one. I love Jesus seriously. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the guy says, legalist. You see, Jesus calls us to follow him, not perfectly, but seriously. And unless we take up our cross and follow Jesus, we can't be his disciple. The guy in the comic strip was making a show of religion. I love Jesus. And Jesus says, if you follow me, you need to keep my commandments. Well, that's just legalism, Jesus. It's almost almost the reverse of how we think about hypocrisy, isn't it? I've got a relationship with Jesus. That's what the T-shirt said. And Jesus says, no, if you really know me, you don't just wear a t-shirt you actually 
try and follow me and love me. In the next section uh, after this, Matthew recounts this bizarre incident where Jesus and the disciples come upon a fig tree and it's got green leaves uh, but no fruit. And Jesus curses this fig tree because it doesn't have any fruit, which seems a bit heavy-handed. And the tree withers. They come back a few days later and the tree withers. And the question is, what's going on? What's Jesus doing? And the answer is Jesus is just giving a little parable of what the people in the temple, what their lives were really like. You see, fig trees, the fruit always comes around about the same time as the leaves. So if there's leaves on the tree, the best bet is that there's fruit. It might not be 100% ripe yet, but there's usually fruit. So for a tree to have these leaves on it but no fruit is like this big advertisement saying, come to me, I'm bearing fruit. And then you get there and you go, there's nothing here. Just this big show and no substance. It's the same as the T-shirt, isn't it? A big show. I love Jesus. Love him. Love him to bits. But inside it's just a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. What's Jesus' solution to the corruption of the temple? It's to clear the temple of hypocrites. It's to clear God's world of hypocrites. And unfortunately that means all of us, because all of us aren't pure enough, all of us aren't good enough, all of us aren't free from hypocrisy. God's plan is to destroy hypocrisy either by destroying us or by destroying us in Jesus and raising us up with him. Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, every single one of us, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. All these words from Galatians. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We can't make ourselves fit to meet God because sin and hate and hypocrisy always lurk in dark corners of the temple of our hearts. We can sweep out all we want but there's still always filth in the corner. It's like that corner of the bathroom that you can never quite get clean. 
That's what our lives are like. All that's wrong with us needs not to be swept up, but put to death, crucified with Christ, buried with him. And everything that's right with Christ needs to be made a reality in our lives by being raised up with him through the power of his resurrection. You and I can unclutter our lives as much as we want. We can welcome outcasts and strangers as much as we like. We can throw off every kind of hypocrisy and we ought to do those things. Those are good things to do. But if we do those things, we won't meet God because the only place to meet God is in Jesus Christ. This passage puts before us two options to adore Jesus and receive him or to reject Jesus. When the crowd saw Jesus coming up that road to Jerusalem, they said, God save us. And when the religious leaders saw Jesus coming up that road, they said, we don't want to have anything to do with him. You might be very religious, you might be very irreligious, but none of that matters. What matters is you either adore and receive and love Jesus. And if that's true, Jesus cleans up your life. Or you reject Jesus and you resent Jesus. And Jesus will destroy the hypocrisy at the end. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us through the Son of David, Jesus Christ. Father, we want to confess that uh, as we look at our lives, there's so much clutter and mess and rubbish. Lord, whether it's busyness, even the busyness of good things and right things, Lord, whether it's sin and the distraction of sin, and the allure of sin. Lord, we pray that you would cleanse us and put to death in us everything that's wrong and evil and corrupt. That you would crucify us with Christ. That his powerful death would destroy all that's wrong in us and that his powerful resurrection would bring us to new life. Lord, we want to confess that uh, so often our lives are structured to distance us from people, 
And yet you, Lord, through your Son, entered into the mess of our world and drew near to us. Lord, forgive us, we pray, and help us to enter into the mess of others' lives and to draw near to them. And Lord, each of us can identify areas of hypocrisy in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for those things, that you would cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Lord, if there are any of us who don't know Christ Jesus, we ask that you would help us to adore him and love him as the great janitor of the temple, the janitor of the meeting place between us and you, who sweeps out our world and our hearts and our lives and makes us fit to meet with you. Father, help us to love him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.